0: This morning, we have a brand new ministry beginning, so starting with junior high, 8th grade and younger. If you're in any of those age groups, you are welcome to go at this time to the special classes and lessons that are prepared for you downstairs, junior high, 5th grade, younger, preschool. There's something for all of you downstairs with capable teachers so you're free to go. i can invite the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke uh, chapter 17. As we return to our study of Luke's Gospel, I think there might be hope that we'll finish Luke this year. You never know, but it could happen. <laughs> but uh, as we come to uh, this 17th chapter... Uh, you may not recall where we left off, but in chapter 16, Jesus was speaking to the disciples, but it was also a larger group. He was talking to, to Pharisees and others that had gathered around. But as we uh, turn the corner into chapter 17, Jesus is now talking just to his disciples. And uh, these uh, statements that he makes in chapter 17 can can be found in parallel kinds of things in other of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark. And, uh, in different contexts, some people get all excited about that and they say, well, Luke told it this way and Matthew told it that way. How'd that happen? Well, Jesus probably told it more than once. How many times have you heard me repeat myself in 30 years, you know? <laughs> How many times have you heard me repeat myself in one sermon? So, uh, Jesus undoubtedly said these things on a number of occasions. And uh, Luke is telling us that he's talking to his disciples. You can stretch and strain a little bit and find some connectivity between each of these statements. But quite honestly, they seem to be kind of like um, general statements of teaching, or you might even call them a proverb that he's giving to his disciples that uh, kind of stand alone. But uh, they cover a number of areas, some of which we've recently covered. Uh, so, as we look at an overview of this, I'd like you to just follow along in your Bible and uh, pick out the, the areas referring to stumbling blocks, sin and forgiveness, faith like a mustard seed, and service. Jesus said this, verse 1, chapter 17. He said to His disciples, It is inevitable... That stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you? Having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But rather will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Kind of a harsh note to end on, but as we return to that in a few moments, we'll, we'll talk about it. Let's take a closer look. There, there are four different things that Jesus is speaking to his disciples about in this passage And one of the first things has to do with stumbling blocks, understanding sin. And because he refers to causing a little one to stumble, you do not necessarily have to infer that this is a child in this passage. It could be a young disciple. But in other of the synoptic gospels, um, at one point, he is clearly speaking of children whom he has set in his midst. And so uh, I'm just encompassing the idea that he's speaking uh, not only to the disciples, but to children in general. And he says it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. We've talked about this kind of thing before. We live in a fallen world. Um, there are all kinds of things out there to trip us up. Um we are, it is impossible to get through the day without finding something that draws our attention away from Christ and perhaps plants a seed that uh, may uh, begin to grow and fulminate in our mind. And James says sin begins in the mind and then when it's taken fruit it works itself out in behavior and And so the mind is really the battlefield where it all begins. And it's virtually impossible to get through a day without encountering stumbling blocks. It's inevitable that they're going to come just because of our the world that we live in. But Jesus is very pointed to his disciples and saying, make sure you're not the cause of it. And one of the things that is startling to us is that it is possible for us to cause one another to stumble. And it is also possible to cause children to stumble. And and for that reason, we have a particular responsibility to make certain that we never put a stumbling block in another person's way. Sometimes the ways that we can cause one another to stumble um, may be over the issue of where one person has liberty... And another person does not. We have to be careful, and I'm going to get to this in just a moment when we talk about sin. But we have to be careful that we have a clear understanding in our own mind what is absolutely sin according to Scripture and what is a matter of personal liberty and freedom. Paul addresses this at some length in Romans chapter 14, and he talks about... Uh, Some uh, treat one day uh, above another and others treat every day alike. He's speaking specifically of the Sabbath day in the Jewish mind versus the Gentile believers who have come in and do not have that tradition. And uh, there are a number of things in, in the scriptures that are not laid out specifically, concretely as sin. And yet some people do not have liberty and other people do. And uh, he warns us in, in Romans 14 that we need to take care that our liberty does not become a cause to put a stumbling block in a brother's way. I debated about sh- whether or not I should share this story with you. Uh, it's, it's actually a, a point of great personal embarrassment to me. But I think it's beneficial if I share it because it helps to point out what I'm talking about. I grew up in a Southern Baptist home that was essentially teetotally. Uh, We had no, we didn't drink alcohol in our home. My parents didn't drink and it was not something common for us. But my father had a job uh, with the the railroad where he oftentimes was responsible for developing charter trips. And one of his uh, annual charters was the Tampa Touchdown Club which was a train ride uh, beginning about somewhere down in Sarasota and going to Gainesville uh, to the University of Florida football games. And um, the the Tampa Touchdown Club always gave him some expression of appreciation uh, for his uh, work on their behalf. And about every two or three years, they would give him uh, a fifth of very fine bourbon or whiskey that uh, he could enjoy. Well, he didn't enjoy that (laughs) And so it came home and uh, went in the cabinet. It either ended up in a fruitcake or cough syrup. Uh, that's that's the extent of where that that ever landed. And um, I was a senior in high school. I had a couple of very very close friends. And uh, one particular occasion, uh, one of my friends in a very in a close group uh, had developed a sore throat. It was weekend. The doctor's offices weren't open, and he was he was just miserable. And uh, we had a we had a formula. We would take a, a couple of ounces of uh, bourbon or whiskey. We would add some peppermint candy to it, a little bit of lemon juice, and make a cough syrup, and, and take it with a teaspoon. I mean, nobody's going to get hurt by that. In fact, if you go down to the drugstore uh, and and bought cough syrup in those days, it had alcohol in it, so. Um, there wasn't a huge bit of difference. But it did come out of a whiskey bottle. And uh, I made some up for my friend. And I suggested that he take it. Well, he had never had a drink in his life. And uh, he didn't want to. And I said, look, it's cough syrup. I, I went through all the chemistry of it. <laughs> it's just cough syrup. He didn't want to do it. I finally persuaded him to take the cough syrup not too long after that my friend became an alcoholic and he spent years struggling and battling alcoholism until finally by God's grace he came back fully to the Lord got his feet back on the right path today he's a pastor a missions leader and a great influencer of young people, and his life is straight, and I'm so glad it ended that way. But I have personally suffered for years feeling that I was the one who opened the door and broke down a resistance that he naturally had that allowed him, for the first time in his life, to taste alcohol out of a bottle. And I grieved over that. For years. Was there anything sinful about the act? There's not. But for him, it was sin. And I persuaded him to break his resistance and to disobey his conscience in following my encouragement. And as a consequence, I seared him in ways toward future resistance. You could argue with me all day long that he might have gone that way anyway. I don't know the answer to that, and I'll never know the answer to that. But what I do know is that I had a role to play in breaking down a resolve that took his life away from the uh, obedience to Christ for years to come. We have to be very, very careful that we never put a stumbling block in one another's way. That liberties that we have do not become an offense to the conscience of another person. We must be careful not to encourage one another in ways that lead them into sin because it breaks down resistance Paul puts it very interestingly to the Corinthians when he talks about eating meat sacrificed to idols. He says, do not destroy your brother for whom Christ has died over meat. Do not destroy your brother. It is possible to damage a brother or sister in Christ spiritually because we encourage them to go in a direction that their conscience prohibits. We have a a, a need to be sensitive. And so the Scripture says, if you have liberty, have it between yourself and God. Be careful of your company. That's not being hypocritical. That's merely being sensitive. If you have freedom in certain areas that the Scripture does not prohibit, but is controversial and may uh, be a problem to other people, then we need to be careful that we don't put a stumbling block in their way by exercising our liberty in such a way that tears down their resolve. But even more so, as we move to the realm of children, there are some interesting things about children that are not true of adults. Uh, For one thing, sometimes people have a mistaken idea that children are sinless. Children are not sinless. Uh, David said, I was born in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He wasn't talking about the sexual act. He was talking about the fact that sin is inherited from generation to generation. God invented sex and said that's good. That's not the problem. The problem is Adam and Eve rebelled against God and uh, the Holy Spirit vacated their lives and they took on a sin nature which they have now passed down to every single generation. And children are born in sin. The Scripture says rebellion is bound up in the heart of a child. It also says, hope I don't get arrested for this, <laughs> the rod of discipline will drive it out of him. <laughs> There's a lot in Scripture about discipline of children and sometimes pain is the thing that is most clearly recognized as long as it's appropriately administered. Did I say all that out loud? Yes, I did. Oh, well. But but the idea is that children are not sinless. They are, however, innocent in certain respects. Children have not been exposed to the world. There's a great deal they haven't seen. There's a lot they don't know. There are things that are completely foreign to them as they grow up and ideally a child should have the privilege of growing up in an environment that maintains their innocence. It is a sad, sad thing when a three-year-old knows far more than they should. They need the privilege of growing up and and maintaining that innocence. Uh, I, I hesitate to call it purity, but in a way it is, that, that there's an innocence to their lives that is um, respectfully naive. And as time goes along, yes, their horizons need to broaden. They need to be taught and trained by godly parents and and Bible teachers and the church family uh, to uh, begin to view the world with wise eyes. But it is possible to know about sin without knowing sin. God knows all about sin. He does not know sin. It is foreign to His person. He is a holy God, but there's nothing you can't tell Him that He doesn't know already. And so a child has a certain kind of innocence. And because of that, and because they're unaware of the wisdom that accompanies knowledge when it's assimilated appropriately, they can be led astray by adults. They can be, and it's interesting how this is put in in Matthew's gospel. They can be caused to sin. Note the the significance of that statement. You say, well, if they didn't know it, it's not sin. Oh, yes, it is. They may not have know They may not know it's sin, but it is still a violation of the the nature and character of God. It, It brings further enmity, if you please, with God. But more importantly, perhaps at the age of four or five or six or three or nine, it puts them in a position where the devil, who plays for keeps and no holds barred, will entice them in ways that bring them into bondage and cause them to fall. And because he knows it's sin and he exercises, if you ever want to find the the universe's greatest legalist, it's the devil. And he knows exactly how to exploit the technicality that this one violated Your character, God, I have a right to bring disaster into their life. And as a consequence of that, children can be led into sin unawares. And their lives can be damaged and marred and wounded uh, for decades to come. The effort required and the redemptive grace of God needed to recover a child who has been abused or damaged in, in younger years as they grow into adulthood. Uh, our, our whole uh, state of counseling testifies to the, to the havoc that is wreaked in the lives of young ones who have been so damaged by abuse and by misuse and by enticement in those younger years. It takes A long time. And Jesus says something very, very stern. He says it would be better if a millstone were hung around the person's neck who causes the stumbling, and they were cast into the depths of the sea. And you can see that image, right? (laughs) You're going down. God has a special kind of anger and judgment reserved for those who lead children into sin. So we need to be careful, first of all, that we do not lead one another, and especially the little ones, that we do not lead them into sin by exercising freedom or enticing them in ways that they do not have liberty or understanding or uh, spiritual discernment. Now, on the heels of that, Jesus says, what if your brother sins? And I just want to briefly touch on this because we we touched on sin and forgiveness not too many weeks ago. The church is a family that forgives one another. But I want to remind us this morning that we're a family. If you say, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is, yes, you are. We have a responsibility to one another. And if we... Uh, catch one another in acts of clear and overt sin, we have a responsibility to challenge one another. Do you know the one area where the church is most likely uh, to fall into the trap of allowing sin to go unchecked? Gossip. Did you know people that gossip are among those in the book of Revelation whose future is in the lake of fire? Gossip is a terrible sin. It destroys character. It spreads rumors. Uh, you've played the game Telephone. After it goes through three or four or five people, it gets distorted. Things get out of proportion. And we're very clever about gossiping. Sometimes we do it in the guise of prayer request. Uh, I'd like you to pray for so-and-so because did you hear what happened uh, to, to their wife the other day and what she did? And... Uh, They must be hurting terribly, and all of a sudden we're into the story. The point was not to pray. The point was to have an excuse to tell the tale. Don't tell me you've never heard of that. (laughs) It happens. How do we handle those kinds of things? Just as an example. Well, you know, if somebody starts to tell a tale to me that I have no business knowing, um, that's probably a good time to say, Can I interrupt you just a moment? Is this something I need to know? I don't have to look at him and say, Ron, you dirty (laughs) sinner. I caught you. No, the point is well made. Is this something I need to know? Are you sure that this is something that you ought to be telling me? That brings the rebuke in a gentle way. But across the board, where things are clearly out of line, we have a responsibility to challenge one another. We have a responsibility to motivate one another to godliness and to good deeds, not to, not to encourage behavior that is uh, leading us away from God. But by the same token, as we covered a few weeks ago, the Scripture says, if a brother sins and comes to you and says, please forgive me, I'm sorry. We need to be ready and willing to forgive. We need to be open-hearted about it and willing to to no longer charge that uh, to that person's account. Um, You know, there's there's all kinds of ways to uh, apologize, and most of them are not very good. Um, You know, I could go to Sharon and I could say, Sharon... Uh, would you forgive me for getting upset with you the other day? I didn't get upset with her, by the way. But if you hadn't done what you did, I wouldn't have been so frustrated. (laughs) No, no, that doesn't, that doesn't help. (laughs) Now I've just, I've just compounded the problem, haven't I? I've just put it back on Sharon. It's her problem. She made me angry. No, nobody makes you angry. You just get angry. Own it. Okay? But, uh, you know, how many of you have caught kids in the act of being mean to one another? And you say to them, you tell your brother you're sorry. And they go, sorry. <laughs> no, say it like you mean it. That's, that's not it. You say that like you mean it. Sorry. <laughs> This literally happened not too long ago. I witnessed this. (laughs) Real repentance means I know what I did. I know what it cost you. I'm sorry that it cost you that. I am going to change. Repentance means to turn around. I'm going to change so that I don't do this again. Ron, when I yelled at you the other day, God convicted me of how wrong that was. I I spoke to you in a manner that was completely inappropriate. You're my brother. I love you. I'm really sorry that I did that. And in the future, I'm going to trust God to give me grace to speak gently to you. Will you forgive me? You see, I haven't put any blame on him. I've owned the problem. Steve Green has a marvelous song, uh, "I Repent," and in that song, there's a line, "Offering no excuses." You know, now I've used Ron and Sharon as my samples here unwittingly this morning, and we have no issues. Okay, just want you to know that. <laughs> this is not public confession. Uh, There are no issues. But that's the idea of repentance has to be genuine. You've got to feel the pain and acknowledge it. And assure that you'll change. Some people are a little slow. They may show up seven times. If they're genuine, encourage them. Forgive them. Let it grow among them. And then Jesus says, now I don't know if the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith because of this, or if this really is one of those uh, separate number three kind of points. It could entirely be, Lord, oh, that sounds tough. Increase our faith. Or it could simply be that this is something they ask. Lord, we need more faith. And uh, Jesus makes the point. He says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, do we have a mustard seed up there somewhere? Uh, we're getting there. There we go. There's our mustard seed. Look how little that is. By the way, Jesus was not being a biologist when he said it's the smallest seed. There are smaller seeds than a mustard seed. That was the smallest seed they cultivated in their in their herbal gardens and stuff. That they recognize that as the smallest seed. He's not accommodating. He's not being. In error, he's just stating the common vernacular, okay? You with me? People find the craziest things wrong with the Bible when there's nothing wrong at all. But Jesus said, if you have faith, it's a grain of a mustard seed, this little tiny seed. You can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and cast into the sea. Now, there is absolutely no point in moving a mulberry tree to the sea. Okay, that doesn't help anything. The mulberry tree's not going to survive. Um, Jesus is deliberately saying something that is shocking. It is intended to get attention. If you, if you have a little bit of faith, you can do amazing things because the activity of faith, the result of faith, is not dependent on the size of your faith, but the size of your God. God. We have a God for whom nothing is impossible. He can do anything. And if we just come to Him with the most infantile faith, the little tiniest bit, and we put our trust in God, Lord, I need Your help. Even if we have to say what the fellow did in another gospel story, Lord, I believe, oh, uh, I'm having a tough time. Help my unbelief. I'm struggling here. But I think You can. I think you can. Help me. I want to believe. little bit. little tiny bit. But you come to God and you say, God, I need help. This is what I need. Jesus says a little bit of faith in a powerful God will, will move mountains. It will move mulberry trees. It will bring God's uh, activity to bear in a situation. And as we exercise that little bit of faith, it's amazing how it grows. Jesus says in another place, this little mustard seed, when it grows up, and it's true, the mustard uh, herb, the, the plant, grows up to a bush six, ten feet tall, and the birds can nest in its branches. This little tiny seed becomes huge when it's allowed to grow. If you exercise a little bit of faith, Jesus says it's going to develop, it's going to grow and it's amazing what will happen as you begin to trust the Lord. Finally, he says, which of you that has a servant? He's been out plowing or he's been out tending the vineyard or whatever. And he's your servant. And he comes in at the end of the day. Uh, and he's been working in the field. But he's your servant. And you say to him, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You work so hard today. I've prepared this wonderful meal for you. Please come in and sit down and let me serve you. Okay, culturally, that would be ridiculous. The servant comes in from the day. This is common throughout the Middle East. The servant comes in from the day and prepares the meal and serves the master. And when the master is satisfied, then he can go and take care of himself. Because his number one responsibility is to serve. Some people look at this and say, man, Jesus is being kind of harsh here. Wow, it's, uh, you know, but he's not. He's, he's pointing out to his disciples what they recognize as being the normal course of life and practice in households that have servants. And the point that he's really making is, don't pat yourself on the back when you've done service to God and say what a good boy am I, and uh, expect God to uh, give you all kinds of recognition and praise and and to do good stuff for you because you did good stuff for Him. Service is our reasonable act of worship. It's what is expected of a disciple. We are called to obey and serve the Lord with all of our heart, to love Him with all of our being, to be devoted to Him. Paul says to the Romans, "...don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect." You give Him your all. You lay it down on the altar. You sacrifice because He is worthy. By the same token, God's relationship to us is based on His love and His grace and His mercy. And friends, we need to drive from our minds the seesaw equation of good stuff for God, good stuff for me. Good stuff for God, good stuff for me we need to recognize that we owe Him our 100% commitment. And then we need to separate that from His love for us, which blesses us whether we deserve it or not. Our relationship with Him is based on grace and mercy and His loving kindness. And so Jesus is saying, "Don't, don't think well of yourself because you're serving That's what you're supposed to do. And when you've done what you ought to do, you've simply done what you ought to do. And recognize that God loves you independent of that. But they do go together because our love for God and His love for us blends into a marvelous relationship. So, What's the takeaway? We need to have an attitude towards sin that exercises great care toward one another, especially children. We need a growing faith that is routinely exercised. We need to learn to pray. We need to learn to trust. We need to put our faith in God We need an attitude toward reasonable service and appropriate expectations. This is how uh, Jesus says disciples are to be. How is God speaking to you this morning? What course corrections need to be made in your life? How has the Holy Spirit been talking to you as I've been speaking Do you need to go and make some apologies to some people? Do you need to repent of being a stumbling block? Do you need to ask God to increase your faith and help you on your unbelief? What is he saying to you this morning? You need to change the mindset that says, with God, it's kind of tit for tat. No, it's not. With God, it's 100% commitment and 100% love. All of one and all of the other. Because we're who we are and He's who He is. What's He saying to you this morning? Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Do not leave us the way we came in, but show us those things in our lives that you wish to change, and Lord, magnify the Lord Jesus Christ in and through us for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.